Hi everyone, Steve here. Unfortunately for this week's episode of the Paddock Pass podcast, we have a few technical issues with Gordo still in Australia, myself and Evo having just flown back to Europe. It ended up being a little bit more difficult than we expected to be able to get the podcast recorded. So the audio isn't perfect, but as ever, the content is exactly what you'd expect from a really exciting opening round of the championship. So apologies from all of us on the team, but uh, hope you enjoy the show. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. Check out renthal.com and the Fit My Bike option for all the different parts you're able to add to your motorcycle. And check out Fly Racing for some of the best off-road helmets that uh, you can get. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, myself, Steve English, Evo Schutzbeck and Gordon Ritchie are going to look back at the opening round of the 2024 World SBK season. And Evo, what a weekend to start the season. Yeah, where, Stephen, where should we start? Because, I mean, there happened so much. It was a great weekend, great racing, four manufacturers on the podium, um, seven different riders on the podium, so can't be better. And it was total chaos, everything. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where you look at it, we had a debut winner in race one with Bulaga winning from pole. We had a career day and a big, sh- like, there's no two ways about it, a massive shock to see Kawasaki and Alex Lowe's win both races on Sunday. We had Andre Inone back racing and leading the way right from the get-go, looking super comfortable. We had Bautista having a crash and then bouncing back to come away fifth in the, in the championship after the opening round. Locatelli should have had three podiums. And that's even before we get to what you'd have to say is the biggest story and no points for Jonathan Ray and a massive crash at the end of the weekend. And coming into this week, obviously when we were on the pod last week, we had Johnny and we had Top Rack talking to each other. And this was just beyond anything anyone could have imagined really. Obviously the pit stops were a bit of a struggle, Evo, on the opening race of the weekend for Johnny. But the big crash, no points in the Super Bowl race. This was, he said, the toughest weekend of his career. And that takes into account Nürburgring when he left that race with his leg in about three different places. And he still thought this was harder because he just wasn't fast. I mean, for me, the the obvious thing was that um, Jonathan was riding nine years for Kawasaki and he had a very close relationship and a very good understanding with his crew chief, Perry Riba. And whenever they had a problem in the past, more or less, they knew what to do, though. They can change a big, big, um, they can make a big difference overnight and to come up with a good idea in the next morning. And now we see a situation that Jonathan doesn't know the Yamaha bike. He doesn't know his crew chief, Andrew Pitt. And on the other side, um, it's the same for the team. They don't know Jonathan and they haven't been able to, to sort out all the problems from Tuesday until Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And me, they made massive, massive changes overnight. They turned the bike from left to right. And apart from the second main race on Sunday, it was not really working. Yeah, and Gordo, when you look at it, obviously in the Super Bowl race, we saw Johnny made a bit of a step compared to what he had been the day before. And then in the second race, before the crash, obviously there was the red flag for Top Rack's engine. But at least Johnny looked like a rider trying to make moves again. So he looked a lot more like what we'd expect to see from Ray. But I thought the most interesting thing this week was his interactions with us in the media center because, you know, you've seen Johnny for 15 years where his chest is puffed out. He's Mr. World SBK. He's the guy that holds all the records. He didn't look like that on Friday and Saturday. He looked like he looked like a lost child, really. You know, he, he was trying to be as small as possible whenever he was talking to us. His shoulders were slumped. His head was down. And he just wasn't... He wasn't Johnny Ray. He was just another rider, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen... I'm so old. I've seen Jonathan like that when he had some of the, the bad times on the Honda. He won a lot of races and did a lot of podiums in a Honda. Did more than any other rider of his era. Um, but he had some really hard weekends. And, and, and Philip Island one year, he crashed multiple times. Hurt himself each time. Kept going. But at the end of the weekend, I'm interviewing him in his little cabin out the back. And he summed the weekend up just saying, I just want to go home. And that, and then he looked like a, a little lost boy. 
Um, and who could blame him? Because the guy was, you know, he really struggled. It was the same year, he had two really big high sides in the same corner. Um, and yeah, that doesn't happen twice in a weekend to, to, to riders like that. And nowadays with all the electronics. So there's clearly something wrong. There's also a few bumps in the track. And so things weren't the same this year in any regard for Jonathan or any of the new riders that had been, even if they'd ridden MotoGP bikes in Phillip Island before. Phillip Island was different this year. So everything was changed for Jonathan. The familiarity of what Phillip Island wasn't even there. The layout is the only thing that was the same. Every other aspect of the track was different from the huge grip levels and the extra bumps that seemed to have been found. But he's the only Yamaha rider who's having quite those extreme problems. I think what Jonathan's experiencing is something that all Yamaha riders have had and they've found various ways of engineering it out. And as Evo uh, explained very well, that hasn't happened yet with Jonathan. I'm sure it will, but it just hasn't clicked yet. And Hareth was fine. He was quite happy with Hareth. But other, you know, Portimao, he wasn't happy. And then Philip Island, he wasn't happy again. So maybe the nature of the racetrack, more up and downs, makes it worse. For me, it was quite an interest, interesting side story that on, I remember on Saturday, Jonathan said to us, said to us what I'm doing here because I'm 17th and normally you guys you are not talking um, to the guy who is 17th and then Goro said to him Jonathan this is because you are Jonathan Ray a six times world champion you won 119 races and in this minute as as Steven said he was just lost he don't know what to say he was not he was not friendly as normal he was very distanced he was he was not uh, comfortable. Yes, I think you're right, but I don't. He wasn't impolite or anything of that nature. But he just wasn't himself, and he wasn't open, and he wasn't. He's always very effusive, and so on. Even if he's in a bad race, he'll tell you all about it and laugh and all that stuff. Yeah, it was a very different um, thing, and the big difference for Jonathan is that he's not at the start of his career anymore as a as a early Honda rider. He's a six time world champion who's moved to a bike that should be at least the same as the one he left. But, you know, and it's very similar to the one he left. Cross-plane crank, yeah, there's something in there um, that's a big difference for a normal four-cylinder. But otherwise, it's a four-cylinder Japanese motorcycle. This is this is a good point, Goro. When he left Kawasaki, Jonathan had in, in his mind that Toprak was second in a championship. He was third. So this means for Jonathan, if he jumps on the bike from Toprak, he must be second. And... On Phillip Island, he realized that it's not working out. And Locatelli was on the podium. Um, Alex Lowe's won two races and Jonathan was nowhere. And I guess this was, for him, this was uh, a pretty tough one. Yeah, and I think, Evo, it's one of those things as well. When you look at the weekend, imagine the mindset that Johnny has. Like, obviously, you mentioned about new crew chief. He's been working with Pariba for nine years. It wasn't always easy for them. But they were able to make it work because especially at the start of their time together, World SPK wasn't like it is now. The Kawasaki was the best bike on the grid. They were able to make the difference. You didn't have to beat 15 guys like you have to do now. Whereas you switch over to work with Andrew Pitt. I said it on the broadcast, I think in free practice on Friday, that you're a marriage when you're a crew chief and a rider. And I had it whenever I was in college. And you said, yeah, I'll move in with one of the friends from college and you think everything's going to be great because you've gotten on really well. And then within two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you think, my God, I just don't like this guy. Because you suddenly find all those those foibles that they have. You know, It could be that they don't do the dishes. It could be anything that just pisses you off. And for Johnny and his crew chief now, Andrew Pitt, they need to figure out how to coexist. They need to figure out how to live together because that's one of the big challenges for any rider when they change teams, when they change crew chiefs. We know Pity's very good. He's finished top three in the world with Van der Mark, Alex Lowe's. He's always been successful, so it will work for them. But it's trying to figure out that relationship, and that's the biggest challenge that they're going to have, really. Yeah, I think the problem is metal, in my opinion. It's metal, it's springs, it's electronics, it's all the things that aren't those two human beings. But the trouble is that's now put a strain that no one expected to see there. Not necessarily between them, but be, but on everyone in that team, everyone, you know, and they had a bit of a mishap in one of the races with the wheel change and so on. Very unlike them. So yeah, I think the trouble is that the it's been a long time since Johnny's been signed for them, and I think we've all built up this false sense of expectation 
that Johnny would just kind of slip in there and after, you know, when he went fast at Jerez, they're thinking, well, there you go, he's already there, it's fine. But it's just not worked out that way at all. And it's been so much worse, there's not a word for it, than any of us expected. I mean, really, it's been so much worse. There's no two ways about it. It's as tough as it could have been for them. And like you said, Gordo, the onus falls on everyone. But what I found interesting is, coming into this weekend, we did say it last week on the pod, this was the worst place for Johnny to come in to make his debut for Yamaha just because we knew all the other Yamaha riders were going to be really strong. Evo, the new track surface, it probably exaggerated that even more for Johnny because we saw it where the riders that were able to carry that corner speed rolled through the corners like a Locatelli or Remy was actually very fast on the GRT bike as well. Didn't really have anything to show for his weekend, but his speed was really good. And Johnny's style is just very, so different to their styles. He's a superbike rider through and through. He's, well, from whenever he was 17, he's only ridden superbikes. So with the exception of that one year on a super sport bike, he's always had to ride a very different way to the other guys. That track surface probably led to the crashes as well because how many high sides did we see this week? We saw, obviously, Johnny had two, one in the test, one in the races. We saw Huertas in the Super Bowl session on the super sport bike of a big crash at the same corner. Lekwona came off in the test and dislocated his shoulder, was ruled out for the weekend. We saw a big crash for Sam Lowe's at the last corner. Scott Redding out of turn six. There's half a dozen high sides when you could go through a full season without seeing a high side for most of these guys. And the track surface, it became the limiting factor, really. That was different to normal because usually riders, it's the tire that generates that grip and you can feel when you're hitting the limit. Whereas whenever it's coming from the asphalt, it's the opposite. And suddenly you've got grip, 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 and then you've got none. And I think for Johnny, this was probably one of those things as well that probably caught him out a little bit more than some of the other riders. For me, the, the best quote of the weekend about this was from Danilo Petrucci, who said, look, guys, I know exactly that I'm riding in Phillip Island, but it doesn't feel like Phillip Island. So this means all, all what these riders have learned over decades about the track, the corners, himself the bikes was gone overnight so they started at zero and we heard this story not only from jonathan we heard it from a lot of riders um that they said um it's so different for us now and on the opposite we had a rider like uh, bulliga for example who was the first time ever with a superbike on this track with his super sport style and he was super fast and super yeah. successful yeah, because he had grip, because he had front grip and rear grip, and he, he could be nice and smooth and use the grip for his corner speed and so on. Didn't have to spin it to steer it. Everybody was expecting to spin to steer again at Phillip Island this year, and absolutely no one could. They, they, everybody that tried it probably had a high side or a, or a, mo a moment that would save from a high side. So that's the whole characteristic was different, and obviously that contributed to some of the results we saw the weekend, which were unpredictable. To say the least. I think it's one of those. And so we'll move on from, from Johnny now, but uh, where do you want to go to next, Evo? Do you want to talk about the fact that Top Rack probably should have had three top fives? BMW had bikes and three bikes in the top 10 all the way through the weekend, really. We had uh, you know, Ian Ones come back. We had Lowe's on the Kawasaki. We had Bulaga. We had Bautista. Where do you want to go next? Obviously, I have a German passport, so <laughs> we moved to BMW. Um, top top rack for me was not a surprise. He showed what we have expected from him after all the all the winter tests. Um, the biggest surprise for me was the difference between him and the other BMW guys. Um, I just wrote a, a story in the morning for uh, for my Speedweek magazine, and I made a comparison between last year and this year. And BMW in general made a big big step forward. But the gap between Toprak and the other three is obvious. And I did not expect this because we are talking about world-class riders. I mean, Michael van der Mark, Garrett Gerloff, Scott Redding, these are really, really good riders. So for me, there's no reason why Toprak should fight for the podium and another guy is 7th, 9th, 11th or 17th, like Scott Redding, who obviously had some problems after his crash. Gerloff was really struggling during the test and into Friday and then made a big step into the opening race the weekend. Vandermark had been closer to top rack 
and then had a crash in the Super Bowl session, ends up on the sixth row of the grid, came through in both feature length races pretty well. And I think that sort of shows the progress BMW has made. There's also a reason why you're paying top rack, you know, let's say the thick end of a million a year compared to the other riders. He is going to make that difference. And he looked really good on that bike, but he's looked good on it all the way because Gordo, when we were at Hareth and Portimao, we talked about it on the podcast that he'd looked comfortable on the bike straight away. He's obviously still braking really strongly and, and aggressively into the corners, but he's adjusted how he's actually having to ride around the corners because obviously the BMW is a very different bike. So he's taking those wider lines and picking the bike up a little bit earlier than he had been in the past. But the big thing for Top Rack was he had speed on the straight and he came in after race one and talked about that with Bautista. And it was it was a good little clip whenever you had it where he's there, I actually went past you on the straight for the first time and Bautista just turning, laughing and saying, don't get used to it. But I thought it was interesting that uh, for Bautista, when he spoke to us, he kind of talked about how easy it is if he can make moves on the straight, which he never talked about last year for some reason. He always said that, you know, it, it's not it's not that easy. Whereas now with Top Rack, he was, he was pretty clear that there is an advantage to be had from being quick on the straight. Yeah, I mean, all, all was missing from Top Rack last year was a faster engine. Because that's why he lost some of those races that infuriated many fans at home was simply he just got done by horsepower and, and corner X acceleration. Now, obviously, there's nobody better than Bautista extracting all of that. For lots of reasons, not just the physical ones, his ability to do it, to get the power on early and so on, to baby the tyres so he's got tyre at the end, to be able to use that extra power in the last corners, having not cooked his tyres. But his tyre was pretty wasted the week. I found that very interesting, considering how good the Ducati's been and how light Bautista is. That usually means... Good tyre wear, and his tyre was toast. And that's part of the reason why Alex was able to uh, go around him on the outside, as well as being an awesomely skilled rider. I thought one of the key things, like, Evo, you were talking about Petrucci's comment about learning the track from scratch. Bautista was interesting because he was the opposite. He was talking about how the fact that everyone else could ride Phillip Island like he's been able to ride it for years, and it took away some of his advantage. It obviously increased the tyre wear for him to a huge degree compared to what any of us would have expected. But this was this this was a weekend where again, like we said earlier, you can take some of the results with a pinch of salt, but you're still looking for trends. We had three races and BMW, they're gonna be feeling pretty good about themselves, even with the engine failure, because Top Rack should have had three top fives. Yeah, and I mean we are talking about Phillip Island, uh, super fast and flowing racing circuit, and this is not the favorite track from Top Rack. This is not a track where he can use the top rack style to his advantage so i think if he's able to fight for the podium on philip island um, then we can expect a lot on the tracks which uh, sweet him more yeah and i think as well if you look at bmw last year in the dry race it was i think 12 13 14 they finished and uh, this year obviously a, a big step on that what was also interesting from the times when you look at it is that with the extra grip from the track everything was so much closer because the Super Bowl race, we had a big group of 10 riders at the front. Last year, even the Super Bowl race separated the field quite quickly. So I think Catalonia is going to be a real test because for BMW, it was a big surprise, Gordo, to see them so competitive in Phillip Island, but they know that a lot of that comes down to the new track surface. Catalonia, on the other hand, is low grip, a big challenge for them. And I think that's where we'll really be able to see where they stack up. But the one good thing is, coming away from this first weekend, there's positives for four of the five manufacturers. And that's kind of what we expect going into it as well. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, we, we expected BMW to take a step up just because of the influence of Top Rack. Uh, that might rub off on everybody else, but as we've said, it's, it's so far it's been Top Rack. Um, it's, I've always said that as the, the stuff is inside that BMW, it might be not the most, uh, how can I say, it's quite an extreme bike. Uh, they've managed to tame it and calm it down a bit. And they've now kept their, their top speed, it seems, and their power. And that's what was needed. Uh, they seem to have sort of done a few of the technical gremlins in terms of extracting all that power, not losing too much heat, and therefore keeping the bike powerful all the way through the race. So the bike's better, let's not forget that. But top rack has definitely been the difference. It's a simple thing. The three aliens that we've spoken about for the last two or three years, and uh, you know the superbike aliens, are still the superbike aliens. What we've now added to is some people from outside, 
uh, hopefully. What we wanted to see was three new aliens joining the existing aliens. As it stands, well, one of the aliens wasn't even at the pictures. One of the aliens is on a bike which he's still got to learn. Another alien didn't do what we expected to be doing on the bike he's dominated the last two championships with. So that's part of the reason why the, the results were so, you know, excessively, wonderfully diverse at the weekend. It's when I flew home from Australia, I had the pleasure to have Alvaro Bautista as my as my neighbor on the next seat. So we had a lot of... Whoa, whoa, whoa. So hold on. You're up the front of the plane then? Are you up the front of the plane? Where, where should I be? Yeah, what was up the back? <laughs> no, Goddard, that's your place. I, I actually had, I had the pleasure of, uh, no offense, Gordo, someone twice the size of you beside me on my flight home. Oh, so oh, yeah. it, it, yeah, it's you a do, little bit different to Evo's experience. You, you do see a few frightened faces when I start walking up the aisle. I have to say that. Back back to my very good story. So yeah, sorry, sorry, Evo, sorry. We had, we had a long we had a long chat about about everything from from women until little children. And uh, my last one was I said, um, you know, Alvaro, I need to earn some money. So if I would make a bet for the top three in the championship, what should I do? And he said, yeah, go for the for the same top three like last year so he knows exactly that philip island was not the truth for the season that this was a this was an outstanding very special racing weekend like we have more or less every year and i said yeah what's what's about alex lois he won two races and he said yeah he will not do this every weekend um and the only other rider he mentioned was his teammate uh, bulega he said he will be top five in every race. He's very, very strong. And I think I think a guy like Bautista, he knows exactly how fast uh, all the opponents are. Yeah, just about Buliga then as well, because I think Buliga is quite an interesting one because speaking to the riders that were battling with him on Sunday, they all said that until their grip level went down, Buliga wasn't really putting much pressure on them. Obviously, a factor of that is you're also trying to be patient during a race. But I think until Bulaga has to come through the pack a couple of times, that's whenever we'll really see what he can do. But with the factory Ducati, he's obviously a step forward on Rinaldi. And for many years, I've always said Rinaldi was a perfect number two because guess what? Bautista won the championships. Ducati won the championships. So he did his job. He finished top six in the world championships and he won some races, lots of podiums. But Bulaga has already done something that Rinaldi could never really do. And that was the pole, the fastest laps, the win, and just looking so comfortable. It was interesting. I was chatting to, I was on Jason Pridmore's podcast with Greg White. And one of the things JP said was so often through the weekend, it just looked like Bulaga was cruising around. And then you look down at the timesheets and he's putting in 28s and 29s and it was just comfortable for him. I, I said last week, I didn't give him enough credit in the super sport class for what he did last year. And on the basis of this opening weekend as well, he's lived up to the expectations that everyone had after winter testing. But now we've got Catalonia, Aston, Mizano, Donington. Let's see what he can do. He's proven he can ride a superbike. Now let's see how consistent he can be. I, I think the thing about Billy is that uh, he's riding style naturally and he's very tall. So he doesn't really have to move around the bike as much. He can just lean in and lead out. He, he, he seems quite old-fashioned in his riding style. And he's very tall, even on a superbike. Um, but it, the smoothness he's got, ultimately in super sport, the first year he was there, the bike wasn't quite there. They kind of hobbled the Ducati a little bit too much because it's got 955cc, which is more cc than Carl Fogarty had for a lot of his career. So, you know, running it as a super sport bike, there were lots of discussions with people. Um, so I think they hobbled it a bit in the first year. They maybe gave them too much in the second year. And then Bulaga and then uh, Caracasola won a race as well. Just, dis you know, he just disappeared in super sport. What he's now got in super bike is, for the last few years, the best bike in the championship and the best team in the championship with all that data and experience and so on. So... Let's, you have to bring all these caveats and explanations in. End of the day, we are there to analyse what went on, not just to talk about what went on, it's to look at why. We're always answering that little question, why? And when you look at the, the, the ground, did you say that the track was a big difference for Bulaga? We'll see how he goes at different tracks. Fine. 
But I wouldn't surprise me if he does it. The other way, what we're seeing is Bulliger, what he can do because he's on a bike in a team and in a setup. With the confidence of being world champion and having tested a couple of times last year, he knows what he's capable of. And at Philip Island, when other people are struggling, he wasn't noticeable though. He did one really good race and then, you know, he was great in the other ones, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same standard. But, you know, uh, Batista turned up, won three races in his rookie Philip Island t- time. Bulger didn't do that. Yeah, and I think as well, though, when you look at it, Gordo, there was a lot of Ducatis up at the front and we had three rookies up there as well. We had Ian One on a podium on his debut, finished fourth in race two as well. Probably could have won the Super Bowl race, which would have then obviously given him a better grid position for race two as well. We had Petrucci on the podium. For much of race two, we had Rinaldi able to make a bit of an impression. Sam Lowe's came in and pit stop problems like Petrucci in race one. But for Lowe's, it probably would have been you know, top eights all the way through the weekend, which would have been a really successful start for him. The Ducati was working well at the weekend. And that's it's exciting whenever you put someone like Iannone on the bike because for both of you, I, I don't think you had too much dealings with Iannone whenever he was in MotoGP. But the guy that's turned up this week just was a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The guy was... Uh, the, the guy... I'd heard all the stories about him. I've never really met the guy. I've seen him a couple of times. I just work in Superbike now. I don't really work anywhere else. Um, and he was great. And he was great with the media. He was great during testing. Uh, he didn't understand my accent when I asked him any questions, which was obviously, you know, we'll have to mark him down for Very that. Very unusual. That we'll, have to, we'll have to mark him down for that. That's his only bad report. Uh, but seriously, when he, he got the gist, he, he, and he understands the questions and he gives you the answers, he's, he's, he seems to be the real deal on and off the bike. And he must have been busting at the weekend thinking, wow, I've got a bike that's nearly as good as everybody else's. I'm at Phillip Island. You know, they've changed the track. You know, all the th- all the leveling things ended up being in his pocket. But it still doesn't explain how a guy can rock up and do what he did. And he was fantastic. And he had a technical problem. His handlebar uh, grip fell off. Started coming loose and then fell off in the middle of one of the races. You know? And it still never phased him. Uh, he, he's great. I, I, yeah, we'll have him. He was, he was, as you say, not just a breath of fresh air. Another different character. He's not quite like anybody else that you see up there grilling him every week. He's slightly different. I remember a couple of stories um, Steve told us in the past about Iannone and uh, careful, you know, Evo, careful. La- la- they're all on. They're all on record on the podcast. So I'm, I'm more than happy to say Iannone was incredibly difficult when he was in MotoGP, and whenever he, I remember whenever he jumped on the Suzuki the first time, and we all went down to him. We all asked him really detailed questions, and he just turned and said, "Yes." <laughs> that was it. Yeah, well, that's and not odd. That was Ian Oney and MotoGP, but Evo, nothing like that this week. Now, we had, um, there was one very, very nice um, situation. We had three kids arriving in the media center and they asked Ian Oney for an autograph and for a selfie. And he was super polite and super friendly to these young kids. And then one of the boys asked him if he can have a, a knee slider from him. And Ian Oney said, Oh, no, 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 because this is a new one. But if you come to the to my box, I give you a used one. And if you see a moment like this, this which was super great for these young kids, I mean, they will talk about for the next for the next thirty years about this. Um, and then you have all these old stories from MotoGP in your back mind, and you think, okay, but this what I'm seeing now, this is so different. Then you think, okay, maybe he changed himself a little bit in the last four years, you know, not only as a writer, also as a human being, he's now, he's four years older. He had very difficult times and yeah, as Gordo said, and as you said, um, in Philip Island, he was, he was super nice to us. And the interesting, the interest in him is big. The, what he, the thing that I found very telling, he said he quite a few banging quotes at the weekend and one of them was, he says, I'm a very lucky person with family things and girlfriend and money and all these. He says, I have a nice life. He said, but the trouble is when someone takes everything away from you, you're not the same person. So he's not been who he wanted to be for the last four years because even though he's got all these other things, the thing that meant most to him, I'm sure 
people's families mean more to them even than the racing does. You know, however ambitious they are or self-centered, they have to be to succeed. But ultimately, he he said, you know, when they took everything away, some words to that effect, you know, it's as if the, the one big thing in his life had been ripped out. And now he's not just got the chance to do it again. He's not been allowed to race and got some bike up the back of the grid. He's in quite a good team with a really good bike. And that's a great position to be in. He must be relieved more than anything else. Yeah, it was I, I asked him about that, Gordo, whenever the grid disappeared and it was just him and the bike. And he was so honest that he couldn't help but love the guy. And we never had that honesty in MotoGP. But that's one of the things that Superbike probably lets you be a little bit more of yourself because we don't have a hundred journals there staring back through microphones and dictaphones waiting for you to slip up. Instead, we've got 10 guys full-time, basically, where you build that relationship, you build that trust. And I think for Ian One, this is much more in keeping with him rather than GP because he is an outlier. You look at the tattoos, his attitude, all those things. But now he's got that chance for a second chance. And you said last week that there's no more important chance. There's no better chance than your second yes. chance. Yes, absolutely. And the thing is, I've seen that happen to quite a few MotoGP riders. The MotoGP riders that succeed in World Superbike, and it isn't all of them, it's quite a few, but not all of them, are generally the ones that turn up and understand, all oh, right, this isn't the same. They don't try and be a MotoGP star in Superbike because it doesn't really wash with anybody. And the defensiveness is so on. A certain Carlos Checa, who I used to do work with in MotoGP, was really like an unhappy, clearly a deeply unhappy person when he was in that pit box, really stressed, everything else. When he came to Superbike, he understood, all right, everybody's quite nice. And, and yeah, it's just, it's just as professional as anything else. But you know, people aren't walking around with clipboards trying to look important all the time. And unfortunately, there is a bit of that in MotoGP. And the riders feel it so much. They're under so much pressure to succeed. When they come to Superbike, it's like a freedom to succeed. Yeah, it's all right if you go and win. We'll, we'll like you either way, you know. Um, and it does seem to change. A lot of them that made that even Biagi became a slightly different person. And he was the world's worst for not wanting to talk to the media and stuff. Evil, sorry. My, I would tell the story about Max Biagi, but no, you're absolutely right. He turned from left to right. Yeah, I mean, and he would go back sometimes a little, but he would go back a bit and then he would come back forward again. And so, you know, Max is Max. He's just a unique person. But I think riders understand that they're given a fair shake in Superbike. There's no one out with agendas against them. You know, it's a different atmosphere. You know, it's a different working environment to MotoGP. Just to go back on to the on-track stuff as well, because for Ian One. When we had, even when we had you on the pod for the first time in Hareth in that round table with Alex as well, we spoke about Ian One. And one of the things we talked about was there's going to be some good weekends for him. There's going to be some bad weekends. The first four rounds of the calendar, four places that he knows. So he should be strong in all of them. But it was the fact that he was so ready for this. He led right from the get-go in race one. Didn't really make too many mistakes. Obviously in race one, he missed one back shift into turn four. He had an engine braking issue as well. Then the super pole with the handlebar. So there were a few little missteps. But he was he just looked like a guy that had just jumped straight through the four and a half years since he was last riding. I mean, I, I'm very honest. He surprised me big time. Um, there was no question about his talent or his speed. But as you said, his weekend was far away from perfect. He had so many missteps and so many problems. And... He showed the speed. He showed that he can handle very different situations. And uh, he ended up on the podium. And with a little bit more luck or less problems, let's say, um, he could be even better. So for me, this was really impressive. Yeah, I think that the thing that got me was I asked him, um, after all the tests had been done, so now he did all these tests and, and competition against other riders, what was the real difference between riding a MotoGP bike and a, and a world superbike. I said, is it more to do with the machine or the tyres? And interestingly, he said the tyres. You know, and you think how much more power, how much more specifically made and, and pure prototype that a MotoGP machine is, that he actually thought the biggest difference in the championships was, was the tyres rather than the machines, which is... I, I, I didn't find odd. I actually thought that's the answer that most honest people would give. But he's already worked that out. You know, that, that, the thing he's got to get used to is the tyre, not the bike. 
just uh, to add to that as well, Gordo, obviously when we talked to Sam Lowe's whenever he jumped onto the Ducati in the tests, that was one of the things he said as well, that he hadn't found the limit of the front tyre yet, but that the extra feedback from the bike helps the rider so much. So for riders, even an Ian One with so many years as a premier class MotoGP rider, three times a factory rider, a race winner, a guy that achieved an awful lot in the MotoGP paddock, for him he's able to get that benefit as well. And it probably made it where to jump onto that bike was helped quite a bit. But Catalonia is going to be different as well. Obviously, a track that he knows. We have a two-day test in the run-up to that as well. So you have a bit of time to be able to get adjustments made if you're Jonathan Ray and try and figure something out. You have a bit of time if you're someone like Ian One just to unlock that little bit extra. But I think when you look at it, there's there's so many things for a lot of these teams and riders, when they go to Catalonia, you're either trying to consolidate what you had in the opening round or you're trying to find something evil. Iannone explained us that his that the biggest problem was that he cannot use the extra grip of softer tires. And um, I need to remember that we don't have really soft tires in Phillip Island. We, we had the two hardest options Pirelli is bringing. So if we go now to a low grip level track like Barcelona and they bring the normal race tire which is the SCX which is a more or less soft race tire and they bring also the qualifying tire then it will be quite interesting if Andrea is able um, to adapt himself to use this extra grip because so far during winter test and also in Australia he struggled big time so this will be the the key point for him yeah and uh, just to move it on then as well to the the next point of of, of conversation Gordo I'm going to give you the chance to pick the next one do you want to talk about Kawasaki or do you want to talk about Andrea Locatelli um, well let's talk about all, all those things together because uh, you touched on it earlier um, Jonathan didn't do didn't find the bike he expected to but he's also left a bike which is not the same this year as it was before that Kawasaki is now effectively a new homologation or at least the homologation that they tried to get two or three years ago. Because they've qualified for all these other things, 250 revs, 250 revs. And, and finally, at the end of last year, they also qualified for another concession, which was on top-end work. So they've now effectively got that bike with 500 revs that they expected to have two or three years ago. Um, and Alex always said through testing, and I don't notice any difference. Well, we can see the difference at the end of the straight. He might have been having to fight off the Ducatis at the end of the straight. But he, he wasn't getting blasted halfway down the street. So whatever's happening through those 500 revs, through the gears, whatever other changes are made to the bike, that bike is clearly peppier. Forget anything else. That bike is a bit peppier than last year. So Jonathan's actually arrived in a bike which might, which seems to have a limit, a self-limit, in power and revs, um, whatever they're allowed to have by the FIM. Um, and the Kawasaki's now got 500 more. I read a quite nice uh, comment on, on our website where our user said if Jonathan Ray would know um, that Kawasaki is receiving 500 refs more, he would stay. And I thought by myself, he knew. He knew exactly how the technical rules will be for this year, um, which will be the maximum refs. And he decided anyway to leave. And I mean, now Kawasaki proved to us that they did a quite good job over the winter. And to be fair, Alex was always very strong in Phillip Island, also um, with the Yamaha. So, yeah, let's see if he can take this form to Barcelona and then to us. And but that's but I think there's one key problem that Kawasaki had last year, both Lowe's, anybody on the Kawasaki, was because they had been, as they saw it, punished by not having this new bike allowed and to allow Jonathan to win another two World Championships. Um, ultimately, everybody's now benefited from that. Alex Bassani might eventually benefit from that. There's just only there's only three Kawasaki's in the championship currently, so that bike is now certainly better and faster than it was. And again, that was their missing piece of the jigsaw. They just needed a slightly faster bike. A lot of the changes they made last year were to make up for the fact that they didn't have a faster bike. And Johnny maybe tied himself in circles. With, with the 500 revs, that bike has transformed everything. The gearbox, everything just works better because it was designed to work with those 500 revs. 
and now it finally is. And look at what Alex Lowe's did with it. Even if it's Phillip Island, even if it was Grip, everything else. That no one saw that coming. I don't believe anybody saw that coming. That those two wins, not one, two. You know? And I think Gordo, it's one of those ones where like we'll take the results out of it for now, but when you look at the Kawasaki Philip Island's got a fast last corner, third gear, click into fourth on the exit. You come across the line, fifth into sixth, and then it's got that downhill run into turn one. That played a factor as well to give them a little bit, maybe a little bit more parity compared to the Ducatis. But they've had that track layout for years and they didn't have that advantage. Yeah, in the they past. got blasted in the last few years. They got absolutely hammered halfway down the street. The Ducatis were coming past them. You know, so and, uh, that's the difference. Well, what what we saw was the ability to be able to fight. I think then you also have it where over the years we've seen it where turn one, turn two, the cow has always been good, Lowe's has always been good. So then you were suddenly in the fight and then able to make moves or keep yourself in front. So that, that was a big positive for them. But I think Catalonia, again, like I said, that'll be a good test to see where they're at. Assen as well. The one thing about it is even if this is only for one weekend, we saw something from Kawasaki that was totally unexpected. We saw something from Lowe's that was totally unexpected. And for Sunday, he was, like at the end of the day, if you if you ride around the outside of Alvaro Bautista into Lukey Heights, because what we saw was a rider that had total confidence. And I think that it's interesting to look at it from, we talked about Johnny having to learn a new crew chief and work with a new team. It's the same for Lowe's, but it's pretty clear as well he's been energized by that change. Now, that's not to take anything away from the work that he did with Marcel in the past. They were able to win in Phillip Island as well. So like Evo said, it's always been a good track for him, right back to the Suzuki days. But to do the double in the manner that he did, I think that speaks an awful lot for Pera Riba and the approach that Riba brings to things. Because obviously for, for Johnny, we we talked about the fact that you you pay to get out of your Kawasaki contract and then you see them do this. But I think... For for Johnny, the 500 revs, he knew that was coming. I think he would have expected that Reba was going to leave with him because years ago, whenever there was talk of going to Suzuki and MotoGP, it was as a package deal. So I think he would have been thinking, if I leave, I'll take Reba with me. And then I think that maybe if he had known that he wasn't going to be able to take all of his crew with him, it might have changed his perspective a little bit more than the 500 revs. But you make your bed and well, then you have, to, you have to lie in it. I think, from if my chronology is correct, Johnny knew that they had the availability of 500 revs. They could use it. And it was not necessarily guaranteed that by the end. Johnny had signed long before the final, the results were so bad that they got more concession points and finally able to use the, the top end changes that they had. There's also been 20% inertia change, which is another thing Kawasaki desperately wanted that. When I saw that there, I thought, well, that's Kawasaki's thing. They want, because they always had a low inertia engine when Jonathan, when, when Tom Sykes was winning, their bike seems to work better with that lower inertia engine. So that was their thing that they wanted out of the rules. So Johnny knew that this and that could happen, but didn't happen. I think Evo's point is right. I think Johnny just needed and wanted a change. He just thought that if, if, if I'm getting beaten by a Yamaha, I should be on a Yamaha. I, I don't disagree with you there. But, you know, as I say, it's a different thing. And even when you're talking about Perry and everything else, Perry's got 500 more revs to work with and his new rider, who's a very experienced rider and knows a Kawasaki. It's not like he's come from another manufacturer. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Shakespearean nature of all that stuff that's going on in there is, is, is fairly obvious to everybody, you know, immediately two wins. But, yeah, we'll see in the rest of the year how good that bike is compared to last year's. But there's a lot of changes. So let's... It's not just the people, it's not just the bike, it's everything. Um, but it's certainly worked to the weekend, two wins. I mean, come on. And leading the championship. Yeah. Yeah, by nine points, not one or two, by nine. You know, it's, it's, it's cooking. Yeah. I thought just for the manner as well, Evo, in those two wins, we saw that in the Super Bowl race, Lowe's hit the front. I think Top Rack was in second. And he knew that he needed to get his head down and time trial for as long as he could just to make sure he could open up a bit of a gap. And when Locatelli came into second, he couldn't make that much of an impression on it. Race two was obviously very different. We saw Bautista afterwards, very obviously, saying how difficult it was for him to find the grip. But Lowe's able to look at it on the bike and say, I've got three laps to go. Alvaro's struggling. 
but I don't want to go hit the front now and burn through my tire as well. I have to leave this as long as possible, as late as possible. But I don't think he wants to leave it quite as late as Lukey Heights. But when Locatelli came down the inside, it kind of splintered Bautista and Lowe's a little bit. So you have to make the move there when the opportunity presents itself. But that was a brave move to go around the outside at Lukey. And for a race-winning move, I haven't seen many of them like that in Phillip Island. Yeah, on the other hand, Alvaro said to me, look, uh, you could do that move <laughs> in the in this corner because I was so slow. And I said, ah, I'm not pretty sure if I could do that move. It's a it's a it's a fast left hander, Evo. It sets up nicely for your for your background. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm a former speedway rider, so probably I would uh, drift a little bit more. But I'm not sure if this would make me faster. <laughs> I mean, this was, this was this was the move of the weekend, without any question. And um, apart from any problems Alvaro had, and um, Alex, he had a in reality he had a quite unspectacular race until this moment. And then, uh, I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah, and to his great credit, Alex did say, I just had more tire than him at the end. But that's fine, you can overtake someone else. You overtaking where he did. But he explained it, he actually gave us an analysis of what he was thinking, is if he got him in there, he knew he couldn't get him coming out, and then he'd have all that left-hand tire in front of, of Batista. In theory, Batista wouldn't be able to use whatever advantage that bike might have over his. So he wanted to be ahead of him before he got into turn 11 because Batista could quite block him quite easily. So that's why he chose to do it then, or chose to do it. There was obviously the incident with Locatelli which messed things up for him. So he had to work hard to get to where he was, but he had tyre compared to Batista. I was honest enough to say how he did it and then was good enough to actually explain the full race craft of it, which made it even better because then you just watched it 10 minutes earlier on TV and you were like, wow. You know, we've not just seen this amazing spectacle with an explanation of exactly how it was done and why it was done. It's interesting, Gordo, that two of the times we've seen Lowe's do something like that was Phillip Island. Because if you think back to 2020 when he won, he shut off slightly mid-corner at the last corner to force the riders around them to have to get off the gas. And I think it's one of those things that this year, I, I think with Reba, one of the big things that's going to happen is that Lowe's will find that he's got a little bit more mental capacity than what he had in the past just because of the way that Reba approached it. And again, that's nothing against Marcel, because Marcel, world champion winning crew chief with Tom, could easily have won three. But Reba, when you look at him over the years, whether it's with Lascorce, Baz, even Johnny, he was able to give them that little bit of extra capacity by taking things off their hands. And that could be a bit of a difference as the season goes on. I don't think we're going to see it, you know, throughout the course of the season where we get what we got from Kawasaki this week. But at least we've been able to see something from them that was very unexpected. And we saw that from their reaction as well, because on pit wall, this team that has won, what, 115 races with Johnny, or 110 races with Johnny, whatever it was, six world championships, they were running around like it was their first ever win. This was how much of a surprise it was for them as well. <laughs> I think if you have a look on the two, two chiefs in Kawasaki, they can't be more different. So Marcel is now working since 20 years for Kawasaki. He's, uh, he studied engineering on the university, so he's a very technical guy who has a super good understanding of the motorcycle. Perry, on the other hand, is a former racer who, who has this special feeling for his rider. And now we can see that maybe this was the missing point for Alex. Maybe he can extract this last... 2% Alex needs to make the step to be a constant front runner. And on the other hand, in the past, Tom Sykes, for him, Marcel was the perfect guy because they are both very much into technique and they think how we can um, develop the motorcycle and so on. Um, but not, not every crew chief is that perfect crew chief for every rider. And I mean, the combination is everything. Yeah, and I think... Uh... Well, that kind of takes us into Locatelli as well because he's got that crew chief change. And from what I was told in the background at Yamaha, it was a push that Locker was making as well to move away and have a new crew chief for this year. Obviously, bringing in Tom O'Kane was unexpected. But to bring in someone like Tom, super highly regarded. And again, chalk and cheese to Andrew Pitt. You know, Tom is probably the quietest man in the world superbike paddock, just like he was the quietest man in the MotoGP paddock. Whereas Andrew, you always know where Andrew Pitt is. And uh, for Locatelli, 
this is a change where maybe what he needs, and a little bit like what we talked about last week on the pod, what he needs is a crew chief that just unlocks that little bit of extra technical prowess for Locatelli and gives him that bit more. And then we'll wait and see what happens. Like Locke was very strong in Phillip Island last year as well. So a little bit like Lowe's, you have to wait and see what he does somewhere else. But I was speaking to Tom after Saturday's race and I was asking him how he had been approaching the job at Locatelli. And all he said was, my only goal in these opening rounds whenever I'm trying to learn a superbike is just don't make a mess of things. And sometimes just looking not to fuck it up is the best thing in the world for a team and a rider because it gives you that confidence to build run after run, day after day, and then see where you're at. Locatelli's uh, kind of the guy who, certainly in his early Superbike days, he was been told to stop overthinking everything. He would be wanting to know exactly what was it, everything that the crew chief was writing down, every little thing. And it's like, no, no, we'll get, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you later about all this stuff. Just download this information. And I think what Locatelli needs to do, and certainly has learned to do, is kind of trust other people and relax a bit. But having a technical, mega technical guy, and again, we've got a similar thing. Andrew Pitt was a racer, not a, not a technical guy. Um, and you've got Tom O'Kane as a technical guy all day. I mean, like Professor Brains, he's a, he's a really intelligent human being. Um, but he's incredibly calm and quiet and, and a peaceful thing. Locker's very agitated. He can see logic. Locker's always got everything under a pressure cooker. He's always... You know, he's 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 over excited. He's over excited. Well, I think somebody like Tom Kane will bring him down. Andrew is the most loquacious guy in the world. He just sits quiet. He's got you know. I can see him t- says it, but inside Andrew's burning. Andrew's still a racer. He's burning away inside. He's a very intense guy inside. He's learned to control and everything else. Um, and a very very good crew chief. And they did find something, but they basically turned that bike inside out trying to get Jonathan to go faster. And finally, they did find something because obviously he's showed a bit better until it all went wrong for him. Um, but yeah, there's like a lot of ground to go with those two guys. Um, but is it, but it's, it really shows interest. Crew chiefs are usually one or two types, the engineer or the ex-racer. To me, generally, that's how it works. That's that's who they are. And if you're a team manager, you want one each, don't you? You don't want two engineers, you don't want two racers. You want one each and they can yeah. help each other. I think that's a good point as well, Gordo, just to have that balance between them when you go into your debriefs at the end of the day and just see what's happening. Obviously, for Yamaha with four world champions on their official bikes, Brad Ray, a BSB champion, Philip Ertl, a Moto3 race winner, they've got six really good riders that they can pull all the data from as well and try and figure something out. Um, you mentioned about the, the issues Ray had and then the step on Sunday. I was talking to the Yamaha guys and they said all of the riders had the same chatter that Ray had just for Johnny, whether it's down to his style or the setting for the bike where he sits. Cause Johnny has always sat further back on the bike than a lot of riders. Maybe it's just exaggerating a bit. That's where we've got the, the Catalan test. We're in Catalonia in three weeks time for the next round, but we've got a test before that. And that becomes super critical Evo really to see if people can make that bit of a step for the next round. Are you, are you going to be down at the test table? Yes, sure. I'm always there. Obviously the enough. Obviously enough. If, some, if there's super bikes on track, you're going to be there. Um, Gordo, for you, will you be down at the Catalan test as well or just around? I will be at the test. My wife will be sending herself in a hotel while I'm slaving away over a whole computer. Um, and then we're going to have a mini holiday before the race. Um, and then I'm going to go to the race after and she's going home. So that's a new, that's a new, going to be a new experience for me. The last time my wife was at a race with me, was probably BSB at Mallory Park in 1994, 95. Montmelo's probably a bit bit nicer than Mallory Park as well, I will Mallory say. Mallory Park had an had a invasion of the crowd into the media centre because no one was on the door to stop them and they get a great view of the track from the media centre. And, and we tried to throw them out and they weren't having it. It was very weird. It was very, Cutter, very weird. Cutter, you know in Germany, in Germany, we say, don't bring your own beer to the Hofbräuhaus. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I will say that to my wife, and then she'll seek you out and slit your throat. But she'll do it nicely. She'll be very polite when she does it, Evo. She's a very nice lady. I, I actually, I don't think I'm going to be at the test. What? But, what? Uh, yeah, well, if you two are there, I don't need to be there, really. I had a look at it, and it was just ludicrously expensive from Dublin. So 
unless there's a little bit of a sale on i'm not i'm not gonna be able to make it but uh the one thing with the test summer like catalonia as well is there's a bit of everything at that track evo we've got the long straight we've got fast corners you've got heavy braking zones and it's a real test for the rider and the bike so for so many teams and packages having something new for this year it's pretty ideal to go to catalonia whenever we should have it where good conditions and a little bit more time on the bike for a lot of a lot of guys like johnny to be able to try and figure something out yeah and normally the, the teams and the riders are saying that if you can perform in philip island and if you can perform in barcelona and you do also well in Assen, which will be the next round then you have a pretty good chance to be to be in front during the championship and i think um after Barcelona, we will have a much uh, clearer view what's going on. Yeah, I think that's for sure. And uh, even for everyone listening, whereabouts will they be able to get all your news from Philip Island, your your plane chat with Bautista, and uh, everything from the Catalan test? <laughs> yeah, you can read everything on speedweek.com. We do really a lot about World Superbike, but also about all the other, you know, from Formula One to motocross. So whenever you're interested in motorsport, you're right on our website. And uh, for you, Gordo, as well, obviously the opening round of the year, anywhere new for anyone to be able to find your stuff from, from Philip Island? Uh, my stuff from Philip Island will be on uh, Cycle News and Australian Motorcycle News are the two primary outlets. Um, and the official race programs are right, the official race programs and try and make them as magazine as possible. So you'll always be able to read a kind of magazines thing. I did a, a statistical thing trying to prove who were the best riders in the championship based on their career stats, which is a lot more interesting than it sounds and a lot more fun to do and a lot more difficult. It's one of those things you wish you hadn't started, but it was a very interesting thing to do. So, yeah, that's another outlet because you can read them on the... And I think they publish them on the website as well. So you don't even need to be there. You could read a lot of stuff from Goro and Speedweek also because he's working since over 20 years for me, but he's pretty lazy, so he's not providing yeah. so much to me. No. When Evo says lazy, what it means is that every single story I think I'm going to write, Evo's there before me, ferreting away, already up with his, and it, up to his elbows, you know? I keep saying, Evo, I've got this story, and he goes, oh, read my website. And it's like, oh, yeah. It's all I got it. This is, this is why we are called Speedweek and not Slow yeah. Week. Yeah, but I don't work the same as you anymore. I don't have, I don't, that's not my primary thing. I find things out. I don't have to necessarily find everything out first all the time. It's just the nature of the way. The internet, which you guys have harnessed and found a way of, of using and getting stuff out, quality and quantity, and no denying it, Evo, it's great. Um, but the customers I have, it's not how they operate. You know, they, they, just, they just need a different set of things. That's it. It's, it's, it's the truth. It's a different set of things. And anybody who does want me to work with that doesn't want to pay me. So, you, you know, generally work involves being paid. You know, otherwise it's, you know, I'm long since, long time since this was a hobby for me. This is my job. I want paying. I will say I'm one, sorry, one thing, Gordo. Go on. To get paid, you have to put in your invoices. I'm not good at that. I'm you're the world's worst that. in the world for that. I might be nearly the world's worst for that. Yeah, probably. Where do we send our invoice? To you, Stephen, or...? Um, yeah, you can you can send it to me, Evo, and it'll go straight into the suggestion bin, the the, the suggestion box. Uh, so this one was sorted. this one was for free, like the last one and the one before and the one before last. Yeah, I you're know. just you're doing too many of them for free, Evo. This is the problem. Yeah, no, that's fine for me. <laughs> As ever for the Paddock Pass podcast, check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. We've got the Qatar Grand Prix around the corner, so obviously our Paddock Notes show, our week, our daily roundup from each Grand Prix will be going live from that. And then we'll have plenty of content just to get ready for the start of the new season. On this week's MotoGP show, we had an interview with Danny Pedroza. We had David at the Michelin factory as well. So really good insight into what happens for the manufacturer and the performance of the tires in MotoGP. So check out that show on uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll be back with a Superbike show after Catalonia, but we might we might have one before that as well on the basis of the test as well. But we'll see what way the what way the chips fall for that one. Gordo, as ever, thanks for joining us on the pod. Absolute pleasure. And Evo, good to have you on the pod again, and uh, we're looking forward to having you on it all the way through this season. Yeah, pleasure. See you soon, guys. And a big thank you to Rental Street and to Fly Racing for supporting the Panic Pass podcast.
This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.